Monique. And Landon. And we are here once again. This is June and the weather is beautiful and we are going to talk to you about CRP. I, th I think today's going to be a little shorter. Yeah, I think it and might be. We got a couple of emails because people have listened for like a year and a half now. Yes. But they kind of forget what we do for a living. Oh, okay. Maybe I should tell them. And we haven't said it since like the third episode. So <laughs> I'm an emergency nurse and a rural critical care transport nurse. And, and what do you do, Monique? I'm an emergency nurse practitioner at an urban emergency department, adult emergency department. Yes, definitely adult. Yeah. All right. So I just thought we should refresh yeah, that. It's been I a know. while. It has been a while. And we haven't actually changed jobs. No. I know. We're still here, still plugging away, still loving what we do. So that's not such a bad thing. So let us go back to the clinical usefulness of C-reactive protein. So let's maybe talk about three very different cases. A 65-year-old male presents to your emergency department three and a half weeks post-total hip replacement, and he's complaining that his hip is sore and it's a little red. Yeah. You call his uh, orthopedist who tells you to order some blood work, like a CBC and a CRP. He doesn't and, have a fever or anything. And a new hip. I know. <laughs> a 55-year-old male with a history of hypertension and elevated cholesterol is referred to a cardiologist, and he's given a requisition for blood work, which also includes a CRP. And a new heart. Yeah, probably. And a 22-year-old female presents to a rural community hospital, a ferry ride away with a classic history of an appendicitis. To determine the need to transfer the young woman off the island for further imaging, the South African emergency physician orders a CRP. And a new appendix. Uh, probably. Or maybe no appendix. So really, it's kind of unusual. They're very three very different clinical situations. And you think CRP can be helpful in all of these clinical situations? It must be. Or maybe not. A mm, little bit of suspense here. Dun, dun, dun. So why don't you maybe educate us on CRP? Educate right. us. Educate. I know. Educate. You're so smart. All right. So CRP, it's actually quite an old marker. It's it's not a new blood test by any means. And and those of us who've been around a while. Me. You, because you're old. Well, as soon as it said and old me, marker, I figured you'd probably mention something about... Because that's what I do. Yeah. You're the smart one, and I just insult you. Exactly. Um, but I'm getting old. It was um, a new marker when I first started. Right. And just then saying. It, and then it was not used and then used again. Absolutely. And I was in the period of it was not used and used again. So they've been starting to order it, and I look at it and go, what the CRP thing? And you, <laughs> you old dinosaur, of yep. course, remember. Oh, I remember oh, it yes. the first time around. Exactly. Anyway, so it, um, what it is is it's... Basically, a uh, marker of inflammation. Right. It is a non-specific marker of inflammation. If you've got inflammation somewhere, it goes up. If right. you don't, it goes down. And that's really the basics of it. So it's a group of proteins called the acute phase reactants. It goes up in inflammation, infections, and malignant disease, which basically are all forms of inflammation. Yeah. Um, CRP test does not show you where it is. No. Does not really indicate how bad it is. Other tests are needed to find all that. So it's kind mm -hmm. of just one of those, a ping on the radar. Absolutely. That goes ping, something's wrong, and then exactly. you have to turn your brain on. Yeah. So you have to kind of add it to everything else that right. you're doing. It's kind of like bowel sounds. Bowel sounds alone are not going to be helpful. They need to kind of be in combination with the clinical history and exam. I know he's laughing right now. Oh, my God. Because I, pulled I, have... out, I pulled out a soapbox. I know. Monique I'm sorry. Monique is now standing on it talking no, about No, I'm sorry. Again. But I'm just saying that some tests should never be standalone tests. That's all. 
I will let you get back to it. I apologize for interrupting. That's fine. I just I don't think we've talked about vowel sounds on our podcast I know. before. But if you've ever seen Monique live, there is not <laughs> five seconds to go by where she will talk about how useless vowel sounds are. They are anyway. very useless, but there so, you go. So let's get back to CRP. I'm sorry. We digress the yes. second time. So what is it for? There's a few why you might order it. One is check infection after surgery. Uh, they usually will rise within two to six hours of surgery. They should be down back to normal by about the third day after surgery. And if they stay elevated, an infection may be present. So that's where a lot of uh, general orthopedic surgeons may use it just to give, like, is there some background radiation here of infection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? exactly. It may, it may be used to identify and keep track of infections that cause inflammation. So uh, can- some cancers, lymphoma, immune diseases, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, that kind of thing. They mm-hmm. may just monitor it to see is it going up, coming back to baseline, yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. As an indicator, not usually an emergency yeah. department use. Um, and we may check to see how well treatment is working for cancer or an infection. They go up quickly, but they become normal quickly if you're um, responding to treatment. Right. So, it, again, it's a form of inflammation. It's a yeah. marker of inflammation. So what else do we do that causes inflammation? I don't know, running up 20 flights of stairs, Yeah. have a little cough or a cold. So, again, it's totally nonspecific. I go to the gym. Just exercise, my CRP might be up. Absolutely. Um, have an infection. People with an IUD. That would be women. Not people in general. Women who have an IUD in place. Well, that's because you're a nurse practitioner. You're much <laughs> smarter than me. Lowly It's not RN. just people. Stop it. We are both complementary team members in the care of our patients. I just don't know the difference between boys and girls. Yeah, and I guess. Uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, if you're pregnant. Right. If women are pregnant. Right. Did I get that one right? Yeah, a bit. Uh, and the last one is if you're overweight. You may just have all, all the time. Your body's chronically inflamed. Yeah. And you are working hard to move blood around and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So but why don't you get back to those cases and, and I will. edumacate me who doesn't <laughs> know the difference between boys and girls. No, I'm just teasing you. So back to those clinical cases, the post-op total hip replacement. So studies have been done that look at CRP post-op uncomplicated orthopedic surgeries. And what they found was that CRP is elevated after surgery, peaks at day three, then decreases till it's normal on day 21. Studies concluded that CRP could be used as an early detection of post-op infections. Because it decreases quite predictably and rapidly, if the decrease is interrupted with a sudden increasing CRP or a persistent elevated CRP, then we can kind of confirm that an infectious process is occurring. So it could determine the need for antibiotics. Keep in mind that we are also looking at the clinical picture of the patient, fever, wound drainage, etc. By the way, just as a FYI, on the website, we will actually put the links to some of these studies if anyone's interested in more reading. Now, the second one, we were talking about the coronary artery disease risks. While this is not a study you see often in the emergency department to evaluate coronary artery disease disease risk, it is interesting as we certainly see patients with CAD. This is a specific CRP though. It's called a HSCRP, which is a high sensitivity CRP. So that's like we'd order it differently? Yeah, you would. Yeah. In cardiovascular disease, hundreds of studies over the past decade decade have established vascular inflammation as a central part of the pathogenesis of coronary artery disease. And though multiple markers of inflammation have been evaluated, like fibrinogen, serum amyloid A, and other kind of different markers, the high sensitivity assay for CRP has proven to 
provide the most reliable data that can be co correlated with clinical outcomes. There was a study called the Physician's Health Study that found that among 15,000 healthy adult male, a high level of HSCRP was associated with a risk of heart attack that was three times higher than the average. And there was another study at, from the Cleveland Clinic, the Harvard Women's Health Study, showed that CRP levels were more predictive of coronary conditions in women than were high cholesterol levels. Hmm. Very interesting. In 2003, the American Heart Association consensus statement recommended that HSCRP be used as an emerging risk factor to further stratify patients who are at immediate risk, according to the Framingham Global Risk Stratification Tool. Meaning they have a calculated, they are calculated to have a 20, 10 to 20% 10 year risk of having a cardiovascular event. So um, that means in 10 years, you, 10 to 20% of them will, will have, have an event. Yes, okay. absolutely. There were just lots of 10s and 20s. I know, I together. apologize. Yeah, it has not been recommended that everyone have a HSCRP done. The recommendation is that if a patient falls into this immediate risk category and the CRP is greater than three, he or she can be judged to have a higher level of risk. And this means that maybe your patient should start like statins earlier, even before they start to manifest some signs. Now, I'm going to geek out so, a little bit. But just before you do that, so, yeah? so HSCRP is being yeah. used to establish risk. Right. I just want to, for our listeners, compare it to troponin that yeah. establishes current, current damage. Absolutely. So You're it's absolutely not like right. CRP in MI, although no. it would be elevated. We're not using it for the sick chest pain. If you're coming in no. sick chest pain, you already got problems. This Absolutely. is more community-based. Let's check this HSCRP and see where we're going Absolutely. as a risk stratification. Yeah, so it's actually more of a preventative thing right. so that we're stopping people for perhaps from getting strokes or cardiac events because they've been deemed immediate risks. And so they start statins early, and then you may not have them coming into right. your emergency just department. To be clear. With, don't no, start ordering this on every chest. Absolutely no. not. Please don't, yeah. um, because they will certainly have an increased CRP. Now I'm going to geek out a little bit about <clears throat> research and the Framingham Heart Usually Study. I'm the one who. I know, out. but this is to me is quite fascinating. So the Framingham Heart Study was actually started in 1948, and they originally wow, that recruited. That was when you were in nursing school. Would right? you stop that? No, I am not that old. Um, it was started in 1948, recruiting about 5,209 men and women, which is very interesting because it's probably one of the first studies that looked at heart disease specifically with men and women. And these men and women were from the ages of 30 and 62 from a town in Massachusetts called Framingham. They had never experienced any symptoms of cardiovascular disease or had any heart attacks or strokes. They followed these people for over 50 years. Wow. For you to actually understand the significance of this really important epidemiological... Oh, I can't even say it. My lips... You're so excited. Ep you can't I know, say I can't epidemiological study. You need to consider the frame of reference of heart disease back then. Before Framingham, most physicians believed that atherosclerosis was an in inevitable part of the aging process and were taught that blood pressure was supposed to increase with age to let your heart pump blood through an elderly person's narrowed arteries. Before Framingham, the notion that scientists could identify individuals and, sorry, could identify and individuals 
could modify risk factors, a term that was coined by this study. So that's where the term risk factor yeah, comes exactly. from. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Tied to heart disease, stroke, and other diseases were not part of standard medical practice. Mm-hmm. We never talked about risk factors. The majority of physicians did not understand the relationship, for example, between high levels of serum cholesterol and heart attacks. Many did not believe that modifying certain behaviors could actually help their patients to avoid or reverse the underlying causes of serious heart and vascular conditions. For 50 years, the Framingham Heart Study and the residents of Framingham, Massachusetts have been really synonymous with these remarkable advances made in... um, The prevention of heart disease. Yeah, absolutely. And actually... Currently, the National Lung, Heart, and Brain Institution, who originally did the study, still exists, and they're still recruiting and following cohorts from Framingham. And so to this day, GPs and cardiologists use the Framingham Risk Score, which is a gender-specific algorithm, to estimate the 10-year cardiovascular risk of an individual. And in order to assess the 10-year cardiovascular risk, disease risk, cardio, cerebral, there's a lot of C's here. There's a lot of big words. Let me say this again. In order to assess the 10-year cardiovascular disease risk, cerebrovascular events, peripheral artery disease, and heart failure was subsequently added as disease outcomes for the 2008 Framingham Rift score on top of coronary artery disease. Oh my God, I thought you were going to hurt yourself. I know. My tongue actually hurt a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know. So back to CRP, and specifically HSCRP, there is definitely clinical utility in doing that study to look at coronary artery disease risk. Now, I'm going to rest now and let you talk about the next one, because my throat and my tongue, it's a bit tongue-twisted there. I think I need a rest. I know, but it's Just trying to draw those words out of you. But it's so fascinating that that kind of research existed, and we're still using the results of that study. It's quite amazing to me i know yeah and, and you were in massachusetts at one point yeah, in your career exactly and, and so you know obviously you were involved in the start of that study would you stop it 1948, 1948 i wasn't even a twinkle in my mother's eyes i'm sure you were <laughs> all right then moving on the, case number three that was that 22 year old lady who was being treated by the South African EP, yeah. and, and, the, and they use CRP in yeah. South Africa. Well, they do because and a lot of times it's difficult to transport patients. Absolutely. To, yeah. This lady's in a rural community hospital, yeah. a ferry ride away from, yeah. a, from a CT scanner or MRI. Is this going to be a useful measure? So uh, appendectomy, it's one of the com- most common surgical procedures. We've got lab tests, imaging studies to improve the accuracy of diagnosis, but the negative surgical rate, meaning we did surgery and you didn't have appendicitis, is still 15 to 30%. It's, That's kind of big. It's kind of big, yeah. right? Now, there's been several studies that have looked at white blood cell count and CRP to aid in the diagnosis of appendicitis, or at least rule it out. Mm-hmm. May not rule it in, but can it rule it out? Yeah. Uh, one study said that if patients had a normal white cell count, normal CRP, that they were unlikely to have appendicitis. But recent studies have shown that patients with normal blood work actually did have an appendicitis, and some even had gangrenous appendix, despite normal inflammatory markers. So, in the end, white blood cell count and CRP alone, not good to rule out appendicitis. Clinical suspicion and physical findings are a better indicator than inflammatory markers. Yeah. Uh, They're not ideal diagnostic tools to rule out determined appendicitis, 
This doesn't mean there's no diagnostic test. Right, though, exactly. Right? It just means that blood work alone isn't good. And this is appendicitis. If you've been an emergency practitioner for a while, this is just the one you're like, oh, God, yes, it could be. Yeah, It might exactly. not be. And we're going to do a bunch of exams that are going to still say it might be. Yeah. And so it's kind of like PE, right? Yeah. Well, it might be, it might be, it might be. Same with appendicitis. So we're getting better with imaging. CT is, uh, well, ultrasound is is helping. Yes, absolutely. Uh, If not working, CT is helping a bit more. And and where we work, we're starting to use MRI to to diagnose appendicitis. Especially in younger people, you know, with radiation kind of concerns. So it's not to say that there is no way to diagnose this. No. Blood work alone isn't good. And if you have a clinical suspicion, you need to advocate for your patient and say, no, we we need to do an ultrasound. Absolutely. At least start there and move them along the diagnostic imaging road. Yeah. And we Um, often say this, don't we? The burden of proof is not the patient's to prove to us they have an appendicitis. It's really our job to prove to them that they do or do not. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So some of you uh, might be thinking, oh, well, yeah, last time time CRP was trendy. Yeah. We also did ESR, which uh, I was around for that period. And ESR was fun because that was the fancy long blood tube. And when you drew it, it was kind of neat to watch it fill because it it filled differently than the other tubes. Uh, anyway, fascinating things. I know. So what about ESR? So uh, ESR is the sedimentation erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a blood test that, again, talks about inflammatory activity in your body. Now, where we work, they don't even do ESR no, anymore. It's anymore. just not part of their lab panel. You know, I'm sure some labs still do it. It's not a standalone diagnostic no. tool. It can be used to diagnose or monitor the progress of specific inflammatory diseases. Right. Uh, we're used more in the past, but we've just got better diagnostic yeah. imaging and things now. And more specific so, markers, right? ESR right. was not really a specific marker. Right. So if your CRP was going to be elevated, your ESR was going to be, be elevated, elevated anyway. anyway. Yeah. So today the test is most often used in some strange things. Yeah. So giant cell arteritis, polymyalgia rheumatica, yeah. rheumatoid arthritis... So this is not something that they yeah. come into your emergency department. Oh my God, get the ESR. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it's something you know. Specialists yeah. down the road may use it in select specific cases to monitor yeah. specific conditions, but it's it's gone for yeah. the most part in our in our even acute care settings. Yeah. So I think mostly you'll see it being ordered by rheumatologists specifically, yeah. but um, you don't often see an elevated ESR without an elevated, elevated CRP. CRP. So that's yeah. probably what it is. So in summary, mm-hmm. CRP. Yes. In, in post-op, post-op infections. infections. Yeah. Yes. In coronary, coronary artery, artery disease. disease. Risk stratification with, of course, other things. So that it's not we look a at. standalone exactly. thing. Uh, and no, in appendicitis. It's yeah. not really going to tell you much either way. Absolutely. So, so that's all we have for this week. I know. It was interesting, though. Lots of things and you got to, to talk ge- about it. To I totally geeked out for once. And couldn't remember how to speak English. I know, because okay. I was so excited. I wanted to tell everybody everything. And if you go on our website, you will see pictures of Monique in Framingham in 1948. We will post some on the website. That will not be me. And she had a little lantern, and she'd walk up and down the hall. And yes. Go. Call me Flo. Flo. All right, well, from Boy Flow and Girl Flow, thank you for listening this month, and we will see you next month. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast, and also find us on Facebook at NursumPodcast. 
We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.